1: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Ryan Stackos. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with none other than Jim Ritalik about his new book, Red Saxony, Election Battles and the Spectre of Democracy in Germany, 1860 to 1918. Red Saxony was published last year by Oxford University Press and is already being counted as a significant contribution to the political history of the Kaiserreich for its long-durée examination of election battles and suffrage debates. Those of you out there interested in modernization, democratisation, authoritarianism and the rise of Nazism should all take note. Ritalik traces in remarkable detail how liberal political modernization, rather than having a democratizing effect, entrenched authoritarian mass politics defined by anti Semitism and Anti Socialism. But enough from me. Jim Rutalik has been so good as to join us to talk about Red Saxony today. So without further ado, Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So before we begin discussing the book, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? I'm a Canadian historian of Germany. Um born in Montreal, lived there from Montreal West
0: for ten years, and then I grew up in, in Burlington between Hamilton in Toronto. I had the good fortune of attending Trent University for my undergraduate studies at a time in the 1970s when it had, I think, uh, no more than about 2,000 students, an outstanding history faculty, outstanding undergraduate lecturers and mentors, one of whom Stuart Robson turned me on to modern German history. From Trent I got the chance with a graduate scholarship to uh, do my doctorate in Oxford, um, which was a wonderful way station to German archives and German libraries once I had decided that I wanted to do a, a doctorate in German history. I finished that work in 1983, and then, especially in comparison to the difficult job market today, I was exceedingly lucky to get a a two-year postdoc fellowship to Stanford, and then another two years to uh, study and work and teach at the University of Alberta. Um, finally, I joined U of T in 1987, so I've been there for more than 30 years. A terrific place to do history, surrounded by quite a large history department, outstanding colleagues, outstanding students, world-class library. And uh, over the years, I've... Um, Tended to stick with the history of Imperial Germany. I teach and, and, uh, study the period from Frederick the Great to 1945. But, um, most of the international conferences I've served as co-convener for, um, have been on the history of, uh, modern Germany, say, from 1948, uh, 1848, sorry, to, uh, 1945. And I'm pleased that I've had a lot of partners, um, who have helped me organize those conferences in the States, in Germany, in England, and, uh, most of them have appeared as collected essays with, um, Cambridge University Press, University of Michigan Press, University of Toronto Press. Um, and so I'm always happy when a, when a conference and discussions among friends
1: and colleagues can result in, in published scholarship. Well. This is, it must be said, a remarkably timely book. You talk about how headlines railing against faceless bureaucrats or promises of election reform and economic relief echo throughout your sources. Your past work has dealt with the German right and what you so aptly phrased the political limits of authoritarian imagination. What was the path from that work to writing Red Saxony?
0: Yes, it was... Um Actually, a fairly direct path, even though notables of the right, the first book on the German Conservative Party appeared back in, um, 1988. At that time, my studies on German, on the German right, I realized had only scratched the surface of the political culture of a number of, uh, Germany's federal states before 1918. There were 25 of them, um, of which Prussia was by far the biggest and uh, at that time i had understood vaguely that there was a strong bourgeois conservative movement not the aristocratic stereotypical prussian junkers but um much more well connected uh conservatives in the kingdom of saxony which was imperial germany's third largest state after prussia and after bavaria and so i wanted to learn more about that particular uh regional organization uh, and then of course that forced me to consider the whole political spectrum because in Saxony which had a quite a weak uh, liberal movement and almost no uh, Catholic politicians because the kingdom of Saxony then and now was more than 95 percent Protestant produced a particularly corrosive conflict between the forces of the right which uh, eventually included almost all non-socialist parties and the very strong early uh, uh social democratic party uh where August Bebel and Wilhelm Liebknecht founded Germany's first social democratic movement along with uh, Ferdinand Lassalle in the mid 1860s so as well as wanting to learn more about this particular state Sub-region, sub-regional, uh, variation on a German national problem. The coincidence of wanting to, uh, teach myself about this particular region and, uh, the timeliness of study in the former East Germany almost, uh, uh, immediately confirmed that this was going to be a useful project. I was turning to this right around the time of the, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall and, um, Saxony, of course, lay behind the Iron Curtain from 1945 to 1990. And uh, I discovered fairly soon that although it wasn't entirely closed to Western scholars, uh, the libraries and especially the archives in Dresden were uh, a motherlode, a, a treasure house of documents that had never properly been analyzed By any scholars, many of them certainly not by Western scholars. So there was an opportunity here as I was starting a new project in the early 1990s to, uh, to not only traverse new ground historically and analytically, but also, um, feel the excitement of traveling and working in uh, Leipzig and Dresden as they were being transformed. Uh, almost on a monthly basis in the initial years after German unification. It was a, uh, a, an exciting time to, to live and work in former East Germany.
1: Well, what is this book about? And what are the big ideas that you want readers to walk away thinking about?
0: Okay. Um, well, the book, certainly like others that have been published in, in the field in, in, in uh, in the last 20 years, is about transitions to democracy. Now, transitions to democracy have been studied often with social science models by political scientists. In recent years, worries about democracy's uh, perversion, uh, democracy's betrayal, is filling headlines um, from around the world, Eastern Europe, for instance, parts of Africa, but transitions toward democracy from authoritarian to democratic structures and practices uh, is what Red Saxony is about. And as a historian, rather than offering another social science model, I thought that charting the course of these transitions over six decades, focusing on a subnational group that may have been Imperial Germany's third largest federal state, but included a population of about 5 million people. So that would be equivalent to today's Denmark or uh, Scotland, for instance, was self-evidently worth considering from a point of view that considers, on the one hand, political modernization, and on the other hand, the persistence of authoritarian forms of governance and authoritarian habits of mind that often conflict with democratic values. There were no public opinion polls in the 19th century, so the next closest thing for me was to use election returns and the reports of foreign diplomats stationed in Dresden as a way of sort of pulling back the curtain on what German politicians, statesmen, monarchs, but also the man in the street, and I say man because the suffrage was restricted for national elections, to males after 1867, what the man in the street had to say about his own political culture by virtue of the votes that he cast in national elections. So that was my starting point, but it quickly became obvious to me that to study transitions to democracy, one had to look at electoral reform and the stirrings of parliamentary practice not only in the national parliament like the Reichstag, but also in uh, state legislatures. The German word is Landtag, but it's equivalent to our Queen's Park here in Ontario, uh, and also municipal councils. Mm. And so I, I discovered that my source base allowed me to say something about what people thought about uh, where their state should be going politically, constitutionally, in terms of Social inclusion, fairness, social policy, and, and, and all, lots of other kinds of policy, religious policy, for instance, on the national, the state level, and the local level all at once. So, Red Saxony is, is, is designed to serve as uh, a kind of microscope, but also a kaleidoscope, a lens to consider larger problems of Imperial Germany in a particular way that uh, readers, I hope, will, will understand um, show Saxony to be neither unique nor paradigmatic of larger German processes, trends, and problems. I like to think of it as a, a, a kind of uh, lens that refracts problems that were typical in other German states and at other times in history. But, uh, nonetheless illustrates them and displays them like a kaleidoscope, uh, so that if you twist the analytical frame a little bit, you will see older problems in a new light and also turn up new problems that historians and other scholars have not addressed previously. So that's, that's what I hope people will take away from, from this book.
1: What was the major finding? What stood out to you as you were doing this work and what did you walk away seeing differently from before.
0: It goes back to my previous comment about so many current studies of the death of democracy, the perversion of democracy. I discovered that the birth of democracy can be very problematic, messy, and contingent. Without a liberal democratic system, without a parliamentary form of governance, it remained contested as to how Germany, and Saxony in particular, and Germany in general would be governed. How did fear of revolution eventually from the Social Democrats push all the other parties together uh, and eventually produce in them a consensus that the status quo with a very limited semi-parliamentary system was what they wanted and what they thought signified one of Germany's political advantages over other nations in the world? How did the universal manhood suffrage conditioned the way voters and party leaders and statesmen saw their nation's future in times of crisis? What did they think about violations of the rule of law, for instance, during the 12 years in which the Social Democratic Party was actually outlawed between 1878 and 1890 under Bismarck? And lastly, the the $64,000 question, I was surprised To find confirmation of my hypothesis that the struggle against democracy before 1918 did in fact produce certain techniques of modern mass politics, certain habits of mind, certain preferences that eventually later, after many twists and turns in the 1920s and early 1930s, led Germans into that Uh, fascist dictatorship after 1933, and all that that subsequently made possible after Hitler's uh, unchallenged rule had been established.
1: Well, let's step back over this long durée for a moment, back to the 1860s. You begin with this portrait of Saxony and the debates about suffrage in the 1860s. What were the issues of the day, and how did they connect to these liberal reforms being debated at the time? Well, the 1860s was a period of
0: extreme upheaval. One can think about the Confederation in Canada. One can think about the Second Reform Act in Great Britain, which significantly expanded the electorate there. Of course, you have the trauma of uh, the Civil War in the United States. But in the 1860s in Central Europe, the, the historical caesura, of the Austro-Prussian War in 1866 essentially eliminated Austria and the Habsburg Empire from the future unified Germany. Uh, For four years, uh, Prussia, uh, with Bismarck at the helm, uh, exercised de facto hegemony over what was called the North German Confederation, which we can think of as a stepping stone towards final unification in January of 1871. What's interesting about this period is that the basic German party structure uh, that continued until the 1930s was formed in a very short period of time, and this was true in Saxony and in Germany uh, as a whole. Although the Catholics were somewhat late to the party in 1870, 1871, by the time Germany was unified in 1871, you had a kind of five-party system that prevailed for many, many decades. And that naturally impacted two sets of questions about where Germany was headed. On the one hand, uh, to what degree would unification continue and accelerate, perhaps eliminating the vestiges of federal rights that continued to be enjoyed by the subnational federal states like Bavaria and Saxony and Baden and Württemberg uh, and the others? On the other hand, so on the one hand, would German political culture with this five-party system be well-suited to an increasingly unitary nation-state? On the other hand, the Reichstag was entirely untested. Uh, There had been the brief experiment with uh, manhood suffrage, universal suffrage in 1848, but the reaction had set in. In 1849 and the 1850s, so that when universal suffrage was again tested after 1867, no one really knew what the future possibilities were for this parliament that could claim to have uh, immense powers in, in, in the legislative sphere, obviously, but might well, it was understood even at the time, come into uh, real conflict, on the one hand with the, the Kaiser, the imperial monarch, as well as the king of Prussia, with his chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, and with the uh, various monarchs, princes, grand dukes, who uh, ruled over these subnational uh, kingdoms, grand duchies, principalities, and so on. Where would suffrage rules on their own state-level parliaments, or their city, their municipal councils, uh, where would the five-party system sort of experience pinch points under different suffrage rules? Because at each of these levels of political activity, the rules for who could vote, who was entitled to a vote, whether the votes would be weighted or not, whether they would all be counted equally. Uh, was a contentious question, not only in the 1860s, but then continued to be, as the Saxon example shows par excellence, all the way up, quite literally, until 1917,
1: 1918. Well, you go on to begin tracing how disputes between liberals and conservatives are moving into the background, and a consensus emerges in fits and starts around combating socialism, that they begin to define themselves as the parties of order. Could you tell us a bit more about what was changing over the 1870s and the different responses to the rise of the Socialist Party?
0: Yes. Uh, Again, there was a... um important period in uh, the spring of 1871 when the fledgling social democratic movement led by August Babel uh, endorsed the Paris Commune, which uh, uh, was a short-lived experiment in uh, practical uh, socialism uh, in Paris after the defeat uh, in the Franco-German War of 1870-1871. Bismarck looked back from 1878 and said that the moment that August babel stood up in the Reichstag and defended the murderous firebrands, as he put it, who had uh, instituted the, the violence uh, and the massacre, uh, these were actually the victims of a, uh, a state-led massacre of the Paris Commune in May of 1871, June 1871, but at that time, suddenly the social democratic threat seemed to take on proportions uh that w- were immediate uh rhetorically frightening and um, seemed to be a harbinger of possible future violence uh for instance when when marx in london and and babel in berlin declared that this was only the first act of a European revolution to be unleashed, according to Marxist doctrine, by Europe's working-class proletariat. From that point on, albeit with fits and starts, an immense political divide opened up between Social Democrats and the non-socialist parties through the 70s. As I say in, in, in my Chapter 3, though, sometimes a closer look reveals uncertainty and division on on both sides, the Social Democrats were um, putting their claims to legitimacy um, on a kind of blank slate, as were their enemies. So that neither side was entirely united, neither side was certain as to the best policy moving forward. And I don't want, sometimes there's a danger of suggesting that the pariah status that Social Democrats enjoyed at least politically through most of the imperial period can be considered sometimes with too extreme uh, a view. As I said at one point in the book, in the 1870s, let alone uh, before the First World War, this was not an era where social democrats, although they could be designated as enemies of the state, They couldn't be lined up against a wall and mowed down with machine guns as they could be after 1933 in Germany. The rule of law prevailed. However, their pariah status politically was something that they and their enemies both had to cope with and figure out how, uh, to a certain degree, the representatives of workers who after all were probably more than 80% of the entire population How they should be treated in this new parliamentary, uh, semi-parliamentary political system. Were their representatives, in fact, the terrorists of the time, bomb-throwing, petroleum-toting revolutionaries, wild-eyed, shown in in frightening caricatures in the (coughs) popular journals of the day? Or were they a legitimate political party that somehow should be it had to be integrated if the uh Imperial Germany's political system was to be fortified and um made sufficiently strong and flexible enough to enact the kind of legislation and and reforms that a thoroughly modernizing heavily industrial uh economy and, and state uh needed at that time to um to stake its claim to world leadership and, and to um, press that claim on the social, the cultural and the economic front.
1: So this divide culminates in the anti-socialist laws after a period of failed assassination attempts against the Kaiser. You talk about the long-term effects of these laws on politics and how they played out at different levels. Could you tell us a bit more about that, please? Yeah. Even
0: when the rule of law was severely compromised, as it was between 1878 and 1890, in many ways the war on socialism remained a rearguard action, for the simple reason that Bismarck did not dare in 1878 to declare that socialists could not be elected to the Reichstag. He outlawed their associations, their press, basically broke their unions, uh, subjected them to all kinds of legal discrimination as well as social discrimination, but he did not dare to make it illegal to stand for Parliament. And so eventually elections became the centerpiece as the party had to largely go underground. Elections became the most prominent and most viable way that the party could survive. Uh, three years after the uh anti-socialist law began in 1878. The socialists did rather well in the Reichstag elections of 1881 after three years of repression. And August Babel said something to the effect of, well, these uh, these elections have shown that we live. And the fact that the party survived at all was a great victory. Through the 1880s, uh, this rearguard action against the party was pressed by administrators, by pliant judges, by local gendarmes who tried their best to hound troublemakers out of their locality, threw the party's leaders into prison. Now, Babel and Liebknecht had already sat for more than two years in prison before the anti-socialist laws were even inaugurated. Their defense of the Paris Commune, had produced in 1872 a uh, famous show treason trial, which condemned them to two years in prison. And yet after 1878, it required more uh, chicanery. It required more uh, questionable uh, le- legal principles to hound their leaders into jail uh, and to hound troublemakers uh, on the hustings uh, during election campaigns in ways that sought to limit the electoral rise of social democracy. And in fact, it failed to halt that rise because by the time the anti-socialist law was about to expire in 1890, there was a national election in February of 1890 before the law expired. Although it was known that it would be allowed to lapse the following September, In that election the social democrats won more votes than any other party in germany and that was an honor that they continued uh right until 1912 and beyond in 1912 the party experienced the breakthrough of winning more seats in the reichstag 110 reichstag seats out of uh, uh, around 400 was the largest party in parliament but the party won more votes than any other in 1890 so what did this say about the usefulness and the, um, the benefits of an anti-socialist law that had discriminated against the party and its followers and its supporters and its members for 12 years and yet failed to achieve its intended goal? This produced considerable hand-wringing among the anti-socialist parties. What next? And so, the stage was set for some rather dramatic uh, attempts in the 1890s to find other means to
1: keep the party under wraps. There's also these entanglements between conservatives and liberals around an anti-Semitic, anti-socialist political culture. Where did this come from and what was going on in the 1870s and 90s that allowed it to emerge this way?
0: Well, the, the parallels to the last few years, um, in our current world situation are, are really difficult to overlook. The right-wing parties were looking for ways to rally new recruits. New recruits as members, new recruits as readers for their newspapers and journals, and new voters. And they discovered not unlike recent uh, political situations around the world, that by conflating different threats, whether it be Jewish immigration from the East, whether it be notions of a uh, inner enemy, whether it be economic resentment uh, felt by those who had been left behind by German industrialization, they discovered that conflating the socialist, the liberal, and the Jewish threats offered... Uh, tangible rewards. They were willing to indulge in demagoguery, outright lies. They were willing to indulge in what we now call gerrymandering, uh, rewriting the rules of the electoral game in terms of, uh, suffrage laws, intentionally not changing the geographical outline of electoral districts to represent population changes. So that, as in the countryside, which was largely conservative, as it, uh, each electoral district had fewer and fewer voters, and as the parties which tended to vote social democratic had more and more voters, the decision of all parties besides the social democrats not to change the electoral boundaries was a kind of negative gerrymandering that meant voters in the cities were increasingly disadvantaged. Uh, they elected one member per electoral district, but sometimes those electoral districts grew to have 500,000 um, eligible voters, where in the countryside or a small, small principality, one member of parliament might be elected by 50 or 60,000. Members. But these demagogues on the right decided that it was necessary to defend, uh, state authority. Very often that meant, uh, defending Prussian traditions but they also decided as most conspicuously in the 1890s that a defense of Christianity was necessary. Now, Christianity could embrace both uh, Protestantism and Catholicism, so it wasn't uh, entirely a question like the Kulturkampf, the struggle against the Catholic Church in the 1870s. It was put on a different setting in the 1890s where right-wing politicians made consider- got considerable traction during the election campaigns and in voting to different levels, uh, parliaments at different levels of governance, by claiming that Deutschtum, I guess, could be defined as Germanhood, was under siege, was under threat by the liberal uh, reformist, Jewified, as the language of the time put it, by the press, by uh, popular culture that had thrown off the the bonds of conservative, uh, traditional practice. All of these things suggested that the liberal and the Jewish and the socialist threats came together in such a way that demanded a a response. And they didn't get very far when they argued that that response should entail uh, the cutting off of German borders so that no Jewish immigration from the East, for instance, would be allowed. These kinds of legislative proposals actually usually went nowhere in the Reichstag. But in the popular press, and uh, in what Shula Folkov has called a kind of cultural code, uh, anti-Semitic and anti-liberal uh, discrimination became very pervasive. And although the outright anti-Semitic parties um, scored some breakthroughs, in general, they did not achieve anything like a uh, like a, a a popular following that would be above say ten or twelve percent of the national vote in a particular election. I think their high point was in eighteen ninety three. This cultural code that suggested that anti semitism was somehow something that offered rewards in in, in future elections and suggested. Uh, a way of uh, providing uh, a pioneering uh, vanguard to a movement to uh, keep other uh, aspects of modernism at bay, produced some interesting and provocatively successful uh, new initiatives on the right. The Conservative Party famously incorporated into its program of 1892 a new program plank that said uh, the intrusive uh, influence of Jews in our national and cultural life is something that must be combated with every means at our disposal. So, in a nutshell, uh, these anti-democratic parties found that anti-liberalism and anti-Semitism worked very well in helping them uh kind of, we might say today, rebrand their message as a Christian-German message that was directed against both inner and outer uh, external enemies of the right.
1: So as time moves forward in the 1890s, after Bismarck leaves office, Saxon conservatism is left casting about for a political vision. Can you tell us more about this pivot? You talk about it sort of as trying to outflank the anti-Semitic parties in this turn to anti-socialism.
0: Yes. Now, your last point about the turning to anti-socialism is interesting because eventually, in trying to outflank the anti-Semites or or, or uh, outbid them, as it were, for the anti-Semitic vote, the conservatives were on shaky ground because many of the anti-Semitic leaders were also, in a sense, reformists. They, they weren't the leaders, the most popular tribunes of the anti-Semitic parties were not your backwoods Prussians. They, they didn't really want to maintain the status quo. And sometimes they legitimately spoke for the economic interests of the lower middle classes or even the working classes. So the conservatives found themselves in a in a bit of a, a tricky situation. Eventually, by the mid-1890s, aware that some of the anti-Semite Uh, as they put it, stolen parliamentary seats from them by offering the same message, only a more radical version of it. Some conservatives and others on the right started to criticize the radical anti-Semites. But I think crucially, they tended to do so because they were noisy, not because they were wrong. And these conservatives remained beholden to older traditions of kind of backrooms, elitist politics, And the anti-Semites, as well as the Social Democrats, proved themselves very adept at organizing large rallies, publishing headlines that screamed falsehoods uh, and conspiracy theories. So that it it became uncertain for many conservatives exactly uh, uh, what their long-term practice should be. Were they, in fact, playing the role of the Sorcerer's Apprentice? One of the old traditional conservative leaders reacting to this uh, threat, ironically, tending to conflate the threat from anti-Semites and from the Jews together. Uh, and the irony there is pretty obvious. He claimed that uh, Social Democrats uh, and the new anti-Semitic rabble-rousing leaders had contributed to what he called a brutalization of public opinion. and. By that, in many ways, he was simply expressing conservative disdain for universal suffrage, where uh, one man, one vote, that principle produced a new form of politics and political outcomes that these traditional conservatives who felt, and to an extent the old-style liberals as well, felt much more comfortable with small committees that decided on nominations and and cut deals in the back room to um construct coalitions uh say that elected their uh, preferred candidate um a lot of this went out the window when one could change the tone and the outcome of an election simply by ra- producing a, a rally of say 500 listeners and uh, 5000 listeners instead of 500 the scale of politics mass politics with these Huge turnout rates and uh, the increasing use of the mass press, of large public rallies, um, and occasionally violence in the street to beat up one's opponents instead of out-debate them. Uh, These were very uncomfortable novelties to the traditional right. Um, So through the 90s, they were uh, trying to come up with uh, what one anti-Semite leader called the trick, the trick that would lead to a successful mobilization of what they'd like to think would be a new movement on the right, not just as traditional, standard, small-scale political party on the right. And eventually, after a number of other possible alternatives were exhausted, uh, the Saxons showed the way nationally because they devised, in the mid-1890s, a new suffrage for their own parliament, that essentially wiped out the social democratic threat. At the time, it was conceived also as a way to uh, uh clam up the uh uncomfortable anti-Semitic rabble-rousers in Saxony as well. But most clearly because of the conflict with the social democrats stretching back to the 1860s, this new suffrage in 1896 was designed to wait votes, according to a three-class system, has already prevailed in Prussia, and to wait votes in such a way that the working classes, those 80% of voters, would not be able to elect their chosen representatives to the Saxon Landtag. And one by one, the Social Democrat representatives in the Saxon Landtag, the Saxon State Parliament, were voted out so that not a single one was left by 1901.
1: Well, this disenfranchisement from the 1896 reforms all seems to blow up in June 1903. What happened and where did it come from?
0: <laughs> yes, well, as you can imagine, if, if uh, I, I devoted the better part of a Chapter 8 um, to this particular question. It's labeled Red Saxony with an exclamation mark. That is what was proclaimed after the uh, surprising election of 1903, June 1903. There's many levels it can be analyzed on. Most conspicuously, the, the Reichstag election in, in 1903, which of course was on the basis of universal manhood suffrage, showed how social democrats under universal suffrage could achieve results in national elections that were impossible at the state level and the municipal level, where these suffrage and other bulwarks against, uh, against socialism continued to uh, hold sway. On one level, uh, the stunning socialist victory in June 1903 was simply a backlash against what was called the suffrage robbery of 1896, where the relatively equitable uh, existing Saxon suffrage was uh, revised uh, to produce this kind of Prussian model, three-class franchise that turfed all the social democrats out of the Saxon parliament. The Sax- uh, Saxon Social Democrats weren't well enough organized to, to launch a real protest movement in 1898. But a number of factors immediately before 1903 suggested that the time was right for this backlash to, to happen. It so happened that a, a royal scandal in 1902 illustrated the... Uh, the how, how out of date the the saxon state the saxon monarchy and, and the saxon conservative parties were it's it, it it's uh it, it was the um, the object of a great deal of salacious reporting in the winter of 1902 1903 the, the crown princess actually ran off with her belgian lover uh and and uh, left the crown prince of saxony there, uh, to, uh, to raise his, his family on his own, um, he was obviously a cuckold and, uh, this produced a, a, uh, quite a, a remarkable wave of enthusiasm as, as scandals today can bring new voters to the polls. Um, it appears to have had that kind of effect in June of 1903. But the more immediate result was continuing discrimination against social democrats, the fact that they had been victimized by the uh, suffrage reform of 1896 so they had no representation whatsoever in the kingdom where they were strongest in all of Germany and suddenly partly because of the majority system of elections uh, uh, it so happened that uh, a small change well not a small change a fairly significant change in, in voter sentiment meant that Social Democrats in, in, in Saxony won all but one of the Reichstag seats that represented the Saxon kingdom. In the Reichstag of 397 seats, Saxony was allocated 23. In June of 1903, partly because of this popular outrage, economics had to do with it. Saxony was experiencing a very significant short-term depression in 1902, 1903. National politics uh, produced its own motives to vote Social Democrat. But the Socialists won 22 of those 23 Reichstag seats from Saxony. And for the Saxon right, suddenly the sky was falling. But for the Saxon Social Democrats, in a sense, they thought the Rubicon had been crossed. They, they proclaimed the next day, Saxony has turned red. And from that point onwards, the, the so-called Red Kingdom of Saxony uh, was born. Uh, obviously a volatile political situation, but a stunning election outcome that in a sense inaugurated the six-year period of crisis in Saxon politics where the two sides contested uh, another likely and possible reform of the state-level parliamentary suffrage. If it was so obviously out of tune with the national suffrage for the Reichstag, if the party could have zero representatives in the Saxon parliament, but twenty-two out of twenty-three representatives representing the kingdom in, in, in Berlin, the the disconnect there between the suffrage systems was so egregious and so outrageous to Democrats in Saxony, and by the way, not only Social Democrats, but left liberal leading uh bourgeois uh uh, writers and politicians as well that a uh, uh a significant second reform or it's actually the third reform in saxony uh of the state level parliament uh parliamentary suffrage was deemed to be inevitable the question was what kind of suffrage would it be and so that crisis as different parties contended to put forward their own best suffrage proposal lasted six years until finally uh, a new suffrage was enacted in 1909.
1: We arrive at 1914 with your choice of that ever so prescient Lenin quote, the war served as a great accelerator. What happens between 1914 and 1918 around these discussions?
0: Generally, not very much happens. In 1914, the Kaiser declares a domestic truce, a so-called Gord Frieden, where he says, I no longer recognize parties, I recognize only Germans. How did the domestic truce unfold in practice? Well, largely it was wishful thinking. Partisanship did not disappear from German politics. And yet there was a necessity to keep the war effort going to keep workers, necessary workers in the factories, to keep the soldiers marching to the front, to allow Social Democrats uh, a greater say in the actual running of industry, in the marshaling of resources, war material, industrial production, uh, uh, conscription, food distribution, and so on. In many ways, uh, Forty years of effort by the social democrats to be accepted as as equal partners, or at least uh, uh, viable represent representatives of the working class interests, uh, were suddenly realized overnight. All of these uh, ways of accepting social democrats and workers into the war effort and into the, into the, the political nation had to be initiated, had to be accepted. However, in Prussia and in Saxony and elsewhere, um, whenever the issue of further parliamentary and suffrage reform came up, the consistent and consistently successful counter argument was that we cannot anticipate exactly uh, where things will stand at the end of what everyone assumed would be a victorious war. Uh, and so we cannot anticipate to what degree the working classes need to, need to be rewarded at the ballot box for their contribution to the war effort. The effort to establish what was called a Neue Ordnung, a new order in Germany, to think about what the post-World War uh, order would look like internally in terms of domestic politics, uh, was something that was deferred time and time again in Saxony and Prussia and elsewhere. Only grudgingly, in the middle of 1917, did the Kaiser hint that he would be open to the idea of reforming Prussia's notoriously reactionary three-class suffrage. But he he and his chancellors were not willing to uh, allow themselves to be pinned down. In Saxony, the elections that were scheduled for 1916 were postponed twice. And in fact, in 1918... When the war was, uh, fairly obviously going to be lost, it, it was suggested that the, at least a year should be allowed to lapse between the end of the war and the first elections for a post-war Saxon parliament. So anti-democratic forces and the uh, statesmen in Prussia and in Saxony, uh, and in, in, in the imperial offices as well successfully postponed suffrage reform until it arrived, one can say almost literally, at the 11th hour. Of course, uh, the armistice was proclaimed on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. In Saxony, the beginnings of a parliamentary system of government were only being put in place in the last three weeks before the uh, revolution of 9th of November in the armistice of uh, the 11th of November, 1918. So the agony of election battles, election campaigns and suffrage battles was no real agony at all during the First World War. The agony was all at the front. It, it, electioneering uh, became a kind of uh, mock posturing. In that uh, people claim that no one could, uh, as I said, no one could quite foresee the degree to which uh, uh, workers should be enfranchised, literally and figuratively, in which they should be embraced as legitimate members uh, and participants in the political nation after 1918. Uh, the devastating blow that the war was not going to be won, but in fact was being lost in 1918, that set the stage not only for the stab in the back legend that Social Democrats and Jews and other defeatists had stabbed the German army in the back in 1918 when the milit- militarily Germany was winning the war. That was, of course, a ludicrous claim, but uh, it gained traction. The idea that there is a continuity uh, across August 1914 and across November 1918 in terms of uh political practices and and Germans willingness to embrace democracy i i i i take with a with a um, a, a whole shaker of, of salt not a pinch because it seems to me that to discuss actual political practice as well as the prospects for further democratic reforms The the pre-war and the wartime experience are are so utterly um, different. Uh, And similarly, the wartime experience and the post-war experience, the context is so utterly different that uh, I don't – not all of my colleagues agree with me, but I, 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 I take a skeptical view that the democracy of the Weimar Republic could be built on a robust, well-functioning democratic culture in imperial Germany. I, I, I just see too many counterarguments to, I think that, that uh, proposition has, uh, has generated a, a great deal of new work and interest and, and new insights into Germany's transition to democracy across 1918, 1919. But uh, I think some
1: skepticism is still in order. Well, that's really the question that can draw everything in focus. The Sondervig thesis, or the special path thesis, is that it was a failure of modernization in Germany that led to this failure of democracy. How is your work speaking to that idea?
0: Yes, the, the Sondervig thesis has justifiably been discredited, torn apart, dismantled, however you want to put it, in the last uh, 25 years, um, to good effect. To say that Germany de- deviated from a normal path of democratization, uh, as Jeff Ely and David Blackburn told us, it is, is quite ludicrous because there is no normal path of democratization. In fact, when you consider just Britain, France, the United States, where are the common denominators there? The idea that Germany was set... On a tragic path towards the Third Reich by the failed bourgeois revolution of 1848 is is, is ludicrous. The idea that old-style agrarian Junkers called the shots in German political culture before 1914 is 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 ludicrous. I think the the the, the most important and, and the most uh, useful conclusion of the post-Zondek view is that. Uh, bourgeois uh, interests and groups in imperial Germany did, in fact, exercise something close to hegemony in the economic sphere, when you consider who was actually um, at the top of industrial concerns and, and devising industrial policy. Culturally, certainly, and socially. Bourgeois codes, bourgeois morals, bourgeois habits, were ascendant in Imperial Germany, so the idea that uh, a failed bourgeois revolution and a uh, a bourgeoisie that was willing to lie down in the face of aristocratic elitism has been dispatched as a as a historical argument. But it seems to me that the Saxon case shows that we have to put into a, a perspective the positive achievements of the German bourgeoisie in a review of my. Earlier book on G- Germany's Second Reich, the modern German historian at Cornell, uh, Isabel Hull, pointed to the what she called the rosy revisionism of the post-Sonderberg consensus, which um, stresses bourgeois achievement, bourgeois education, bourgeois culture to such an extent that um, we forget about the degree to which German burghers illustrated and, and, and displayed limited interest. In political and social fairness, limited interest in inclusivity toward women, towards workers, towards Jews, and, and to others. I, I don't want to make, you know, to replace the, the bourgeoisie's white hat with a black one. But the Saxon case demonstrates, and for this, it's, it's a very useful case study because it was so heavily bourgeois influenced industry, organization, and so on. Bourgeois respect for the state uh, was um, uh, very evident. Bourgeois fear of socialism was very evident it It took a a, a a man of the stature of an August Babel to fight for forty forty years on behalf of workers and others for social justice and democratic reform to achieve success with even the partial opening up of political uh, representation, the partial opening up of reformist, uh, initiatives in the final years before the right to achieve success in the face of bourgeois resistance. So can we say that democracy was waiting in the wings in 1918 or 1919? Obviously, with an eye to historical contingency, we, we, we can't really say that that was the case. My my argument is that opposing currents were strong before 1918, and that it's perhaps wise to avoid the teleology of charting democracy's odyssey towards triumph in the, the Weimar Republic, or even in German politics after 1945. A triumph that many people call modernity as something that history is marching inevitably towards. And it's, it's with a, with an eye towards the threats to democracy in the world of 2018 that I suggest we need to pay attention to that Odyssey's more ambiguous, less uplifting episodes. Because, uh, as I tried to tell in, in my story, they didn't lack their own drama. Before 1918. So it it reverts to the question that I mentioned earlier. The question about German political development, modernization, the ability of democratic, partially democratic and partially authoritarian regimes to coexist. These, uh, these questions have to do with the birth of democracy as much as with the paralysis or the subversion of democracy uh, in today's world. I, I don't think that without taking an overly
1: pre- presentist view of history, we can entirely divorce the two, the two issues. Well, on that insight, before we leave, what are you working on now? My new project emerges, uh, I think, fairly organically from
0: my work on the... Uh, German political culture, but instead of sticking with the German right, I'm lurching over to the German left, and I'm studying the social democratic leader August Bebel, uh, who spent the first, uh, uh, actually the the middle 20 years of his life in Saxony and uh, uh, contributed substantially to shaping Saxon political culture in the 1870s and 1880s. My project's working title is The Worker's Emperor. He was known as the uh, uh, Kaiser der Arbeiter or the Arbeiterkaiser in Germany, a kind of ersatz emperor for the German working classes. So my my working title is The Worker's Emperor, August Babel's Struggle for Social Justice and Democratic Reform in Germany and the World, 1840 to 1913. And those are his life dates. Uh, August Babel was the son of a lowly Prussian um, officer uh, born in 1840 in abject poverty. 1860 though, he came to Saxony and he worked as a uh, apprentice turner, uh, lathe operator. Uh, His specialty was turning out uh, window pulls and door handles from buffalo horns. And he worked his way up to become the unchallenged leader of the Social Democratic Party in Germany and the strongest party uh, in the Second International, that dated from 1889. The Social Democratic Party in Germany had over a million members in 1913, and Social Democratic Trade Union movement had over two million members. So rhetorically, politically, and in terms uh, uh, of his role as a cultural icon, August Babel is a uh, very important figure, in the history of uh, Imperial Germany uh, and modern socialism, I've never tackled biography before, so the genre has a certain uh, lure for me. I'm sometimes torn when people ask me, "Is it going to be a conventional biography or not?" I'm not sure whether they want it to be a conventional biography or not, and I'm not sure what I will uh, uh, what I will write, but. Um, I'm still in the research and early writing stages of the project, but I'm excited about it because biography imposes a certain structure on a, a research project and yet can be very liberating as well. I'd, I'd like to think that I will write about both the man and his times,
1: and um, uh, this should keep me busy for, uh, for a number of years to come. Does this mean we can look forward to a German, notables of the German left? (laughs) Well, he was indeed a notable, but I'll have to think up
0: a more original title than that. (laughs) I think the one I've suggested to you is a bit long-winded, but I'd also like to think that uh, readers might be interested, even if they know nothing about August Babel, they might be interested in um,
1: one person's struggle for for social justice and, and democratic reform. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today you've been very generous and uh, hopefully look forward to having you back in the not too too distant future i've enjoyed this thanks for having me on well that does it for us here at new books in german studies once again we've been chatting with jim Ritalik about his new book red saxony election battles and the specter of democracy in germany 1860 to 1918. red saxony was published in 2017 by oxford university press and If you think you might be interested in picking up a copy, please consider using the link in the blog description. Jim has also kindly provided another link to a 30% discount flyer that you can find there as well. So if you are interested, know that you can defray the cost. With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.